A reading from the letter of James. Where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives all the more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Send out your light and your truth, O Lord, that they may lead me and bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Amen. Gregory Wolf is a writer who, until recently, was the editor of the Image Journal, which is a literary journal that's grappling with the religious traditions of Western culture through the lens of literature and art and music. And in a recent issue, maybe about a year ago, Wolf penned an editorial titled The Patron Saint of Losers. And in this editorial, he weaves the story of his own father, who was always poised on the edge of massive worldly success, never quite getting there, and himself spending his own life trying to catch a glimpse of the human condition, a glimpse of the divine work in the world, rather than to chase dollars in business dealings. And in weaving the tale of his own father and himself, Wolf asks us to consider Don Quixote as a potential model for our lives. And Wolf quotes several literary critics, all trying to capture Cervantes' own growth in love for his hilarious character, Don Quixote, which I haven't read it all, definitely not closely enough to get what the critics see in it directly, but what they're saying is that Cervantes himself maybe started out um, trying to be really ironic against the romanticists of his own day, but he ends up falling in love with the character that he creates. Don Quixote is this man who seems to have lost all of his rational faculties but it turns out he's actually been acting on faith. And one literary critic links Quixote to the Spanish mystic school, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, St. Ignatius of Loyola, these people that, from a worldly standpoint, were utter fools and yet spent their lives seeking communion with God. And in so doing, this critic suggests that these people weren't rejecting rationality, but they were simply working out the, quote, 
intolerable disparity between the hugeness of their desire and the smallness of reality. Don Quixote's misadventures, tilting at windmills and whatnot, demonstrate this disparity between desire and reality, and demonstrate also that, again, a quote from one of these critics, Christianity is a religion for losers. The successful man adapts himself to the world. The loser persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the loser. Now, we can talk about that last line another time. But I think this idea that Christianity is a religion for losers, that the successful person adapts themselves to the world, whereas the loser adapts the world to themselves, I think this is a slant way of restating our reading in James this morning. James says in the verse just before our reading began that there is a wisdom from the worldly, rebellious system, indeed from the devil himself, and that this wisdom demands our adaptation, that we form ourselves according to it. But then he says there's also this wisdom from above, from the Spirit himself, that likewise demands our adaptation. So which do we choose? We may need to remind ourselves again that James isn't primarily talking to individual believers here. He's talking primarily to the church. It's not that his words have nothing to say to us as individuals. They absolutely do. But he's specifically talking about self-appointed false leaders in the church that are sowing discord and teaching heresy as they are driven by their own ambition rather than relying upon the Spirit of God in humble trust. I read recently that uh, a churchman believed that Acts was when the church was at its best and it's been all downhill from there. And I thought to myself, has this guy even read the book of Acts? It's always been downhill. <laughs> because we're always messing things up. James is telling all the way at the very beginning, generation zero, what has become an all too familiar story. The community of faith being ripped apart by conflict and disputes. And the reason for this fracturing, James tells us, is due to what I hinted at last week. We've got these competing desires pointing us in every direction tearing us apart, and we so easily lose our true north of having our lives rooted and wrapped up in the life of Jesus. There's this subtle undercurrent in what James is writing here that I, I think is a nod to the Hebrew wisdom literature, right? If you were to read through some of those books you would see wisdom is almost personified, and the early church fathers talked about wisdom as being fulfilled in the person of Christ. But he's also, I think, getting at some of the formative stories in Genesis. When you consider that Adam and Eve were told to cultivate the garden and to abstain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when the serpent comes to tempt them away from trust, he does so by appealing to their prideful ambition. Eve recognized, we are told, 
that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And upon eating, she and her husband both had their eyes opened. This story in Genesis 3 is one that we will never get away from. And I, and I think that's why, even though it's really subtle, I, I do think James is, is really sort of picking at it again, that there are these competing wisdoms in the world. But what's fascinating to me about Satan's attempt at disruption is how closely they resemble the truth. He tells them that eating from this tree will make them like God. That has got to be the best goal so summarily stated for all of humanity, to become like God. That's a great idea. He tells them that eating this will make them become like the one in whose image we were made. I mean, when we say that we are living our lives hidden with Christ in God, what we mean by that is we are becoming like God. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to be a little Christ. We are being brought into the divine life as participants, and so the question is then, what's the difference? How does Satan almost tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and yet leave out just enough so that it ends with such a destructive bent? In the garden scene, Adam and Eve choose to give fire to their selfish ambition by asserting their own judgment in place of trust. A reaction of trust would have been to remember that God is good and that he also longs for Adam and Eve to grow in their resemblance of him. After all, it was he who created them in his image. A reaction of trust would have been to wait upon the Lord with patience for him to do his work in his time. It would be to trust the apparent paradox of life in God. But they don't react with trust. They react with judgment. They will decide what is right and wrong. They will be the keepers of knowledge of right and wrong. And James brings a difficult word to the church here by showing us how easy it is for us to employ this same sort of devilish wisdom by choosing for ourselves what it would mean to follow Christ rather than be informed by Christ through his spirit in his word and in the teachings of his church. The root word for heresy means to choose. It's Adam and Eve in the garden again, right? It's choosing a part of the truth, an almost truth, a not quite the whole truth, over and above the tension of orthodoxy. To be a heretic is to refuse to rest in trustful submission to the tradition, the faith once delivered by the apostles, and to instead set ourselves up as the arbiter of right belief and right worship. The church's tradition has all sorts of things to say that run deeply counter to late modern culture in the West. That's a nice way of saying the things that the church has held for thousands of years are radically offensive to our world. 
but to pretend that we get to build some sort of bespoke Christianity, picking and choosing whatever we want, and leaving behind what makes us uncomfortable, is the very definition of this fracturing, devilish wisdom that James is describing here. And you can see this playing out in Christian communities all over. James tells us very directly, at root, this is caused by envy and selfish ambition. When we allow our covetous cravings to run free, we end up viewing other people as competition in a world of scarcity, a world that is built for nothing other than maximizing our own pleasure and autonomy. Don't miss the connection between our insistence on picking and choosing which of Jesus and his church's teachings will follow and the unchecked culture of greedy acquisition around us. Right? We're not somehow separate from our culture and can just stand in critique. We're, we're products of our culture. And the very sort of selfish ambition and envy that has led to fracturing upon fracturing in the church is rooted in the same sort of greediness that we see out in the world. I mean, we made Jeff Bezos a millionaire. And do you know why we did it? Because he told us he could get us whatever we wanted in two days delivered to our house. He tapped into our greed so that we could fulfill his. It's incredible. There are an estimated 30 million people in slavery today. It's estimated there are 1.2 million children enslaved in forced labor or sex work every year. Our greed and ambition and covetousness has absolutely devastating consequences. Our embracing of the devil's upside-down wisdom has led to disorder and, as James says, wickedness of every kind. And the same pride and lust and ambition that leads to human trafficking and large-scale war is the same pride and lust and ambition that whispers to us that we can be the arbiters of our own religious commitments, that we can decide which parts of the moral life to pick up or put down, which parts of the creed to really believe. The same consumerist tendencies are at work in our religious life as in the rest of our existence. But we're not called to be consumers. We're called to be disciples. We are called to receive the wisdom from above, a godlike wisdom that is first of all pure and peaceable and gentle. It's full of mercy and good fruits. We are called to be humble because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The wisdom from above is truth. And it reveals to us our proper place in the world. We are creatures, not the Creator. But we are made in the Creator's image. We're not autonomous, but we have real moral choice. We're not the judges, we're not the arbiters of good and evil, but we can trust God's goodness. And it is in this trust that we find peace, and as James says, we will reap a harvest of righteousness. But notice what a distinct line James draws between pride and trust. He's still riffing off the Didache, isn't he? There are two paths. One leads to life, the other leads to death. 
Friendship with the world, he tells us, is enmity with God. The world here is a gloss for the worldly system of ambition and self-centered autonomy that is leading to all of this self-destruction. James is telling us that you cannot simply exist in both humble trust and prideful autonomy at the same time. The humble, trusting person has peace because she knows that God works for her good. She has gratitude because she sees the gifts of God in her life. The arrogant, autonomous person is agitated, always striving to enlarge his rights, always on the lookout for reasons to be offended, always voraciously needing more, unable to give thanks for what has already been given. These two options get played out in all areas of our lives. The devilish wisdom rooted in pride and falsehood breaks apart our relationships, our families, our churches, our communities. But the godly wisdom that is rooted in truth and humility and peace brings healing and stability. It brings mercy and generosity. Because it tells us who we really are. We are not the arbiters of right and wrong. We are not those who should sit in judgment. We are the ones who will be judged. As I said last week, as we say in the Today and Morning Prayer, we believe, O Christ, that you will come and be our judge, not the other way around. But I think if, if we can get ourselves into a posture of really believing that we will be judged by a good, holy, and gracious God, rather than trying to fill out this need for autonomy, we will actually begin to find peace and generosity because we will be living a life of trust. You married people, are you generous toward your spouse? Do you look to God with humble trust rather than demand that your spouse live up to some unachievable ideal? You parents, do you trust that God loves your child and seeks their good even more than you do? Or do you fearfully demand their obedience so as not to reflect poorly on you? You wealthy, do you trust that it is God who truly provides richly for all of your needs? Are you marked by peace and generosity? Or do you fearfully hoard your resources until you have just a little bit more? You single people, do you trust that God longs to meet you even in your loneliness? Are you marked by peace and gentleness, or have you reacted in distrust and anxiety? You who are struggling with chronic pain and illness, do you trust that even in the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of your own mind and body, that God is a good Father? that he will one day undo all of the brokenness of your present affliction? You who are struggling with the teachings and the tradition of the church, do you trust that Christ gave to the church apostles and prophets and pastors, that he gave to the church the Spirit who will lead us into all truth? There are two paths. There's a path where we continue to set ourselves up as the judge, and we will exist every moment in anxious agitation to our own self-destruction, 
or there's the path of trust. It is so easy for us to keep acting out the sin of our first parents, to forfeit peaceful, humble trust and assert ourselves as judge. But as we heard from Isaiah just a few weeks ago, in returning and rest is your salvation. Quietness and trust shall be your strength. Friends, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble because it is the humble who recognize that they are in need of him. I invite you now in this moment of silence to pray the prayer of St. Augustine, which captures this humility so succinctly. Lord, I do not hide my wounds from you. I am sick, and you are the physician. You are merciful, and I have need of your mercy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.